May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. If you have been with us for at least a year or a few years, you have no doubt heard me ask this question before, but uh, I'm going to ask it again. If every Christian leader that you respect, okay, let's, we'll start with that as a qualifier, woke up tomorrow and said, we no longer hold to the doctrine of the Trinity. It doesn't make sense. There's no verse in Scripture that says God is Trinitarian. So it's out. We're still Christians, but the Trinity doesn't really work. Would that make a practical difference in your life? I think for a lot of us, if we're being honest, we would have to say, maybe not. Often we tend to think of the Trinity as something that's sort of reserved for dusty theology books and smelly church basement classrooms. Or, just as dismissively, we assume that the very idea of Trinitarian theology is just too difficult. It's too impossible to understand, and so we should just sort of set it over there and not really deal with it. There's a story told of a monastery in England, where outside the chapel is a plaque that says, here the monks would gather every Sunday to hear a sermon given by the abbot, except Trinity Sunday, given the difficulty of the subject. So I guess you just didn't preach that today. I think one of the most troubling features of anemic, I'll say, Christianity in America is that for the most part we have lost a robust sense of the Trinity. And Thomas Jefferson actually predicted this. He said that he was confident that Unitarianism would become the general religion of the United States. And while very few American churchgoers would identify as Unitarian, it's troubling how easily most of us can get through the entire Christian story without bothering with the Trinity. Listen, I'll do it for you. It's really quite easy. In the beginning, God created the world because he was lonely, and he wanted the world to love him. He wanted human beings to love him. So when we rejected him, his anger was stoked, and our punishment is death and hell. But in his mercy, he appeared as Jesus and took in our punishment so that we could be saved and go to heaven. Have you guys heard something like that before? None of you? Some of you? Yeah. This is a Unitarian God. That's not the Christian God. All of the major plot points of Christianity are there, but it is entirely unchristian. And it results in absolute disaster. Because the subtext of the story that I just told you is of a lonely, needy, selfish, angry God. A God who needs human beings to love and respect him. And if they don't, he's thrown into a rage. And in this scheme, salvation almost looks like being saved from God. Doesn't it? He's certainly not someone we want to hang around very much. Do you need me to tell you that this is the God that much of our culture conceives of? And even more dangerously, it is the God that most often gets associated with Christianity. 
This sort of all-powerful Santa Claus who obsessively keeps a list of who's naughty and nice, and he only gives gifts to the nice little boys and girls, and everybody else gets hellish charcoal. As John Calvin said, our minds, our imaginations, and our hearts are idle factories. They are constantly churning out something for us to worship other than the true God that has been revealed. And I fear that most of us, whether we realize it or not, have some sort of distorted view of God rather than his existence in community as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For most of us, somewhere lurking back in our minds is this selfish, needy, angry, power-hungry God. Or is it just me? Calvin would say that we do this almost imperceptibly to ourselves. And so what happens is that throughout the year, as I and others are up here talking, and as you have heard in church your whole life, and I say, God, you inevitably hear some version of mean Santa. And it doesn't matter what the preachers say, in the back of our minds is always lurking, yeah, but isn't this guy just really jealous and angry and demanding? And try as we might, you just don't want to have a close relationship with someone like that, do you? But it's not just that. As I read to you a couple of weeks ago a quote from David Foster Wallace as he was giving a commencement address at Kenyon College, he says that everybody worships. Remember this? Everybody worships. You don't get a choice in that. You only get to choose what you're going to worship. And then he goes on to say, if you worship money and things, you will never have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. If you worship your intellect, you will end up feeling stupid and a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But then he says, the insidious things about these, form of worship, these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. Okay, this is a secular dude. I would say that's also part of why they're insidious. He says it's not, let's put it this way, it's not just that they're evil and sinful. The insidious thing, he says, is that they are unconscious. They're the default settings. We default into idolatry. And what I want to add to what he has to say about that is that whatever the little g God is in your life, money, power, sexual allure, whatever it is, all of it can be traced back to that big dead idol of the Unitarian God. You see, if the God that you worship is alone and needy and selfish and angry when he's rejected, then you are going to act the exact same way because you become like what you worship. You will begin to use people and things as ways of finding self-fulfillment, and it will never, ever be enough. We are living in an age of insane technological advancement and a complete lack of wisdom in how to go about using it. And you can see how we are just on this self-serving treadmill that never ends. Just one example. If you follow the new studies on dating trends, no one's even dating anymore. There was an article I read a couple of years ago where they interviewed young men who had been tallying up to 50 sexual partners a year without any commitment. And one of the young men interviewed in this article was asked why he wouldn't want to be in an actual relationship with somebody. And he said, you can't be selfish in a relationship. It feels good to just do what I want. A self-centered God makes for a self-centered man. 
the Anglican churches throughout the years have struggled with this very idea of the Trinity. At various times in our history, radical reformers have entered the church and demanded that the Athanasian Creed be struck from our formularies. Why? Because the Athanasian Creed begins like this. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Now this is the Catholic faith. That we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. That's the faith. It is absolutely essential to Christianity. But we live in a world that has tried to divorce a robust Trinitarian theology from the Christian story. The, the fact that the Athanasian Creed and all of the Orthodox Church Fathers place such emphasis on the Trinity should alert us to the fact that somewhere in there, the Trinity must be the greatest gift ever. And the fact that we don't think that way means that we're missing something. So here's Christian Trinitarian theology. As you just heard in the Athanasian Creed, it's three persons of one essence. It's not three gods. It's one God. But it's also not unipersonalism or monadism. That is Islam and Unitarianism. Over the centuries, theologians have cried all sorts of ways of creating analogies that will help us get our heads around this concept of God existing as three persons in one essence. And so here's some really good ones. No, just kidding, because none of them work. They're all disasters. They don't work, and a big part of the reason they don't work is because they tend to depersonalize the Trinity, right? Have you guys ever heard the, the steam, ice, and water? Yeah, that, it doesn't work. But it largely doesn't work because it, you're no longer dealing with persons. You're not dealing with being. So I realized that talking about the Trinity is a bit hard to wrap our heads around because it turns out if you could understand God completely, then you might actually be him, right? So I'm just going to use Michael Reeves' definition. It's, it's For you theologian types, I, I get it, okay? I, I know that we're not saying everything all at once here, but I think it's helpful. He defines the Trinity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loving each other. It's one God, one in essence and undivided, three persons. Which means that the nature of God, the thing that is behind everything else in the universe, isn't some power or force or unmoved mover. We live in an age that would have you believe that everything can be explained by its mechanics. This happens, then this happens, and it results in this. This is not the Christian story. There is not just some unmoved mover, some nameless power upholding the universal systems and laws. No, there's an undivided unity of three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in eternal love and service toward one another. And when we have a firm grasp of this picture of the Trinity, then all the nastiness of the selfish Unitarian God goes away. And in fact, we see a picture of God that we actually like, that we are drawn to, a God that we would want to be with. It turns out that the triune God is really nothing like the mean Santa that we have created in our idol factory brains. The triune God is this joyful, loving community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have existed in love and unity and service from eternity past, which means God was not lonely when he created the world. He was completely fulfilled in himself. He created the world for something else. In fact, I would say the Father's enthusiasm for the Son and the Spirit's enthusiasm for the Son and the Son's enthusiasm for the Father and the Spirit and the Spirit's enthusiasm for the Father and the Son is so raucous, it's so exuberant, it's so too many bubbles in the champagne sort of love that that is how creation explodes, is that God is just having a really great time. Robert Capon said it like this. If you've been here for any amount of time, you've heard me read this before, but it's just, it's too good. He says, let me tell you why God made the world. One afternoon, before anything was made, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit sat around in the unity of their Godhead, discussing one of the Father's fixations. From all eternity, it seems, he had had this thing about being. He would keep thinking up all kinds of unnecessary things, a new ways of being and new kinds of beings to be. And as they talked, God the Son said, really this is absolutely great stuff. Why don't I go out and mix us up a batch? And God the Holy Spirit said, terrific, I'll help you. So they all pitched in. And after supper that night, the Son and the Holy Spirit put on this tremendous show of being for the Father. It was full of water and light and frogs. Pine cones kept dropping all over the place, and crazy fish swam around in the wine glasses. There were mushrooms and mastodons, grapes and geese, tornadoes and tigers, and men and women everywhere to taste them, to juggle them, to join them, and to love them. And God the Father looked at the whole wild party and said, Wonderful. It's just what I had in mind. Tov, tov, tov. Which is Hebrew for good, good. Good And all God the Son and God the Holy Spirit could think of to say was the same thing. Tov, tov, tov. And so they all shouted together, tov miod. It's very good. And they laughed for ages and ages, saying things like how great it was for beings to be, and how clever of the Father to think of the idea, and how kind of the Son to go to all that trouble putting it together, and how considerate of the Spirit to spend so much time directing and choreographing. And forever and ever they told old jokes. And the Father and the Son drank their wine in unitate spiritus sancti. And they all threw ripe olives and pickled mushrooms at each other. Per omnia sacula saculorum, amen. For ages and ages, forever and ever, amen. Capet is too smart to leave us there. So he says, it is, I grant you, a crass analogy. But crass analogies are the safest. Everybody knows that God is not three old men throwing olives at each other. Not everyone, he says, I'm afraid is equally clear that God is not a cosmic force or a principle of being or any other dish of celestial blancmange we might choose to call him. Accordingly, I give you the central truth that creation is the result of a Trinitarian bash and leave the details of the analogy to sort themselves out as best they can. Do you see that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have been enjoying and loving and serving one another from eternity past? 
That's a sentence that I can't even wrap my mind around. The Christian story is about this God having such overflowing joy in himself that it bursts out into creation, into humanity, and so, of course, rejecting the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit would lead to all sorts of nasty, horrible things, but it's not because God is a meanie who doesn't want us to have fun without him. It's because the entire universe is designed on this self-giving, other-serving love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Indeed, salvation in just such a story would be about being restored into that fellowship, into that unbroken love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The greatest dream anyone could have would would be to be brought into the joy and love that they have among each other. Which means that the Athanasian Creed is exactly right. The only way to be saved from hell, a hell of any kind, is to confess that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, loving each other eternally. Friends, the Christian story is not good news beginning when Jesus came to take all of our punishment for us. The Christian story is good news from the word go, from before the word go. It's good news from eternity past. Creation springs forth as this beautiful creative project of the Father who speaks the word through his Son as the Spirit hovers over the water and brings order out of the chaos. Likewise, the new creation, when the Spirit hovers over Mary and the word is conceived and born in her and brought forth as Christ. In his baptism, the Father declares his love for the Son, and the Spirit descends upon him in an act of joy. And that now happens to every person that is baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Spirit descends upon that person, and the Father refers to them as his Son, whom he loves, with whom he is well pleased. In the resurrection of Christ, in the ascension of Christ, at Pentecost, all of which we have just celebrated, all of these things are joyful movements of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in love together. And discipleship, being a follower of Jesus, is really nothing more complex than just being brought into that love. That's what it means to be baptized in their name. You're being baptized into their life. Friends, I hope that this Trinity Sunday we can begin to tell the Christian story differently to ourselves, in our families, in our communities, because this is the story that our world needs to hear. The world has had enough of selfish, strong men who live only for themselves. And it is only a story that is so radical, so deeply permeating, that God has existed in love as a community from eternity that can undo the darkness of our world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.